you know, this is, <clears throat> this is the last normal service of the year for us. Next weekend, we're not going to have morning services. Rob talked about that. And then the 31st, it's our tradition where we don't meet on the 31st. So this is our last normal service of the year. And I just want to stop, guys, and, and give God glory for some stuff because you got to stop and remember what God has done in our midst in the last six months, in a short time. I mean, we've, it's been an incredible year. We've gone from being homeless to having an incredible church home with bathrooms on the first floor. Yeah, how great is that? Uh, it's, been, it's been incredible. We've doubled in size in the last six months. We've seen more f- spiritual fruit, more baptisms, more deci- decisions for Jesus. We've seen God gather our students together. We've seen people step into saying yes to God's kingdom purposes in our church like never before. And it's exciting to watch. It's exciting to be a part of. When, when we started this church six years ago, my wife and I and just a couple other families, we started praying, God, we believe that this is the, the mission field that you've called us to, to make Jesus make sense, the love, his, his boundless love, the identity that he gives us, who we are in Christ, to make that make sense within our community. And the prayer that we prayed came right from what Jesus' words were in in Matthew chapter 9. This is what he says. Um, Matthew chapter 9 says, Jesus went through the towns and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Man, say that word kingdom. 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 Wow, God, if we could just know that. The good news of the kingdom. And he healed every disease and sickness. It says, when he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus encountered the culture around him and all of its depravity and all of its shortcomings and all of the different political leanings, and and, how did he respond? He didn't say, they're the enemy, they're outside. No, he said, they're the hostages. And I've come to bring them life. And he had compassion on them. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is what it shows us is that the harvest is plentiful, guys. Like, that's, that's God's domain. There's not a lack of people who need to hear about Jesus in our community. There's, there's not a lack of darkness that needs light shined into it. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a family uh, in our community that lost their 18-year-old daughter. And it's been on my heart this week. And many of you know them. We're neighbors of them. And, and that's just been on my heart. God, how do we bring hope and your light into this community like that? The harvest is plentiful. That's God's domain. But you know what he asked us to pray for? He asked us to pray for harvesters. Pray for harvesters. That's what we need. So that's what we've been praying for from the beginning. God, would you send us harvesters, people who would be on mission with us? And so just as God has been expanding those who would call, might think about calling this place church home, this is what I want to do. I want to ask you to join us by being a harvester here. The opportunity is amazing. The commission that Jesus has given us is unbelievable. 
then I'm asking you to invest in your time, your talents, your energy, your prayers, your resources to help move God's kingdom forward through this local church. And I'm asking you to switch your priorities because, listen, the ways of the world is going to be about my castle. And Jesus says this needs to be about my kingdom, having a different kind of mindset to have a kingdom-first mindset. And I want to ask you to be on, on mission with that. I want to be, ask you to be on mission there. To give to that, to give not just like, don't just write a check, don't just volunteer to serve on a team, but to say, I want God's kingdom to be increased in my family, in our church family, and I'm going to pray for that. I'm going to be invested in that. And here's what I can promise you, that when you do that, you do not become poorer. You do not become poor. You become richer. Because here's what's true. There's lots of things that you can invest in, and they will ultimately fade away. Jesus says it this way, like, don't store up for, the, don't store up for yourself the stuff that moth, moths are going to destroy. Like, even if you took all of your resources and just held on to them, with the cost of inflation, they'll just get less and less over time, right? He says rust will destroy that. For me, like, Christmas is just a reminder, this stuff that we strive for that we like I've got to get my kids this stuff it ends up unplayed with in the corner of the room it breaks it runs out of batteries whatever it just falls apart Jesus says listen you can invest in something that has an eternal value eternal worth many of you have done that and I just want to invite those that are kind of like checking this out is this my church home like be about that be about that. Come be a harvester with us. We've seen God move mountains in this church, and that's happened every single time through you. It's happened every single time through God's people that have gathered together under his banner, in his name, saying, you know what? I'm going to serve. It's come from folks who said, I will show up and I will tear out the carpet and I will demo these walls and we will create a space where the students can gather here and we have at any Tuesday night, there's 20, 30, 40 students gathering in this space that would have never stepped foot into the halls of a church, but they're finding Jesus in that environment because there are people who say, I'm gonna give my Tuesdays to do that. I'm gonna volunteer down in the children's ministry and I'm not just gonna fill a post. I'm gonna intercede with them before the Father so that the enemy doesn't have the grip on their soul. That's happened every time through people who say, I'm going to be a harvester, and I just want to invite you to be a part of that. I want to invite you to be a part of that. Let me pray for our church. Let's just, uh, let's hop into God's word after that here. God, thank you. Thanks, Lord. Gosh, what a, oh man, it's amazing to be about these things that you push forward to be able to see people like Joe and Carolyn running to the light and claiming the light and the hope and the sonship of Jesus Christ and how that lets them conquer darkness and despair. Lord, this body has been a part of that. And it's a joy, it's a joy to labor for your kingdom. God, allow, allow us just to, to do that in increasing measure. God, I pray that you'd provide. I want to send more kids to Momentum. I want to send more kids on the winter retreat. I want to be able to sponsor more ministry because people said, I'm going to be a harvester here. Would you allow that to happen, God? We put our trust in you. God, we know that the harvest is yours, and we just want to be faithful to work for your kingdom. Thank you for those that do that. The church is not good about thanking people, but I... I am grateful, God. We love you, Jesus. As we open your word today, would your spirit guide us to the truth of who Jesus is in increasing measure? We pray this in the name of Christ, according to his power, his character, and his authority. Amen. 
Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah, it's the most magical time of the year. And as I talk with people, I'll often say, well, what's your plans? You going somewhere? You have people coming here. And as I engage with folks, there's often an asterisk that, asterisk that, that emerge. Yep, we're going to have family come and I get to spend the next week and a half with my mother-in-law. <laughs> or my brother, he's such a handful. Sometimes he does the craziest things. He's going to be around us. And there always just seems to be like this. This is the most wonderful time of the year. And this challenge that emerges because we're living in community, we're married to, we have children who are, we have relatives that are just challenging to live with. Why? Because they're broken. Because they have brokenness in their lives. Like, how do I interact with them when I'm going to be with them over the Christmas break? They're making broken decisions, and so it it leaves us kind of with this question, how do I deal with that? How do I deal with that? Do Do I just let it go when they start going on this political rant? Do I let it go when they start acting like a jerk, or do I speak up? Do I lay down, hey, this is a truth bomb you need to know about? Like, do I love, how do I love them? I know I'm supposed to, but what does that look like when you have someone who's not easy to love, when they've got issues? We're celebrating Christmas, Advent, the coming of Christ. Now, I spoke with a a friend, anecdotally, who was saying in their workplace, they're not allowed to have anything corporately that's Christmassy up there because it's too exclusive, it's too oppressive, and so for him, he was like, man, I'm going to set up in my cubicle Christmas, I'm going to celebrate Christ, and it was his act of like willful defiance, shaking the fist against the man, I'm going to represent who Jesus is, and so I just believe that in the next 20, 30, 40 years, the church is going to become increasingly the place where we will say, listen, we're going to celebrate who Christ is. And that's what Advent was all about. In 380 AD, these Christians who said, yes, we're going to wrestle with the fact that Jesus was fully divine, but he's, he also put on flesh. He became God in a body. He incarnated himself, and he lived amongst us. And we celebrate the fact that he came and also the fact that he's coming again. And his kingdom is the kingdom that we want to see happen in this place. That's what they were celebrating. What's fascinating to me when we stop and when we think about the incarnation, God coming, how do we know who Jesus is? Do you guys remember in 1995, a song came out, I believe her name was Joan Osborne, called If God Were One of Us, this catchy tune. What if God were one of us? Just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home. How? What would God's name be? How would I know? How do I understand who God is? We do, because God came. And he said not just this is the love of God, but this is how you live in God's love with people around you. This is what it looks like to live out kingdom agendas in the people that are not always lovely, lovable, People that are not always easy to love. How do you do that? Jesus came to reveal that. And here's what we find. We find when you open the New Testament and you look at, and you ask this question, how did Jesus love? When we experience it, when we read it, and when we wrestle with it, you know, it, 
it seems messy. We experience it as like inconsistent. At times we'll have to think it's unfair. Many times we look at it and it seems confusing because when you open the scriptures and you take seriously his teachings, there's this tension because oftentimes when Jesus interacts with people, on one hand, he's forgiving. And then other times he seems to hold everybody accountable. Sometimes he's harsh, you know, and he's fashioning a whip in the temple courts to drive out the money changers. And then the next time he's gentle and he's kind. Sometimes he points out sin and then other times he seems to ignore it. And it seems confusing, and there's this tension there because we have broken people around us all the time, and there are times when we feel like, I'm just going to lay down the truth bomb and show them how wrong they are, and then there's this other part of this that says, you know, I don't want anyone to do that with me, and so I'm tempted to just look the other way, and there's this tension, and there's a temptation for us when we experience that tension that we're going to somehow resolve it and land in one camp or land in the other camp. But if you don't hear anything else today, hear this, that if we try to resolve that tension, if we look at Jesus and how he loved and we try to resolve that tension, we end up losing something very, very important. John, Jesus' best friend, he describes this coming of the Messiah and he actually pinpoints this tension that we experience when we look at and and read about the teachings and the life of Jesus. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 14. This is page 723 in the orange Bibles in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, please take one of these. It's it's got language that's maybe easier to understand. Uh, Please use these Bibles. John's this follower of Jesus, and he becomes an old man. So we would, look, we would understand that the disciples of Jesus, people like Matthew, he was burned at the stake pretty early on. The apostle Paul was eventually beheaded in Rome. Peter was crucified, most likely upside down. All of the followers of Jesus were scattered. They were eventually martyred, or they just kind of faded into antiquity. But John was a survivor, and probably 40 or 45 years after the events of Jesus, they, Jesus said, hey, I'm going to return back. That's a part of what we celebrated at that. I'm going to return back. So the disciples were like, hey, this is great. Maybe he means on Thursday or next week or next month. And then, and then as time went on and it's like, okay, well, John, I'm so grateful that you've told us all these stories about who Jesus is, but it doesn't seem like he's coming back anytime in your lifetime. You probably should write this stuff down. And John writes the gospel of John. He's telling us about these memories that he had seen about Jesus, how they understood and how he understood who Jesus was. And this is what we talked about two weeks ago, that when he starts describing who Jesus is, how do I represent the fullness of Christ? And he says this in verse 14. He says, the word. Jesus is like, a word. And when he uses that, he's not simply talking about a unit of speech. He's referencing an understanding that the ancient audience that he was writing to had this Greek understanding of how the world works. And it's this Greek word logos, and it means this. It means the unifying reason or principle or plan that holds the universe together. 
And John said, Jesus is like the Word. He's the unifying spiritual force, the spiritual principle, the spiritual plan that holds the world together. He says that he was with God at the beginning. And we said two weeks ago that when you read critically the New Testament and you look at how did they understand Jesus to be, was he just a good teacher? Was he just a rabbi? No. No, they understood something about Jesus, who he was. And we said, you can't make too big a deal of who Jesus is. He shows up and on the road with his disciples, he shows them how all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the Old Testament was pointing to and was being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter one says, in the past, God used to speak to us through prophets because that's the only way he could speak to us was through these prophets. But now he's spoken to us through his son, who is the exact reference representation of the radiance of God Almighty. We can never make too big a deal of who Jesus is. It's about his kingdom. It's about his values. It's about his redemption. It's about his adopting us into his kingdom. It's about the bigness of who he is and how he will bring all things together under his feet. We can never make too big a deal about who Jesus is. And that's like this rudder for us as a church. John says, Jesus is like the word, and then he goes on and he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. God stepped into, God decided, God the Son said, I'm going to obey the Father and I'm going to show the world the heart and the mind of God. And think about that for a moment. Um, J.I. Packer says, it's not so amazing that God would suffer on the cross for us and pay the sacrifice for our sins. That's not so amazing. He says, but what is amazing is that he would become a human in the first place. And I just imagine the angels that erupted on the field next to the shepherd says, you don't understand. The Logos that spoke everything into being is saying, I'm going to put on humanity to reveal the heart and the mind of God. The one who's created time was going to step into time and be limited by one space. I've created space and I'm going to be limited by that. And he would be hungry. He would be tired. He would live amongst us. Literally, the word dwelling amongst us. John was using a language, it literally means to tabernacle amongst us. This was the language that the ancient Hebrews would have understood, that how God revealed himself, how God's presence was with the people of Israel, and the desert was through this tabernacle, and Jesus tabernacles with us. It's as if, John is saying, God made this painting and then entered into the painting in order to know the, the, the people of his painting, but they didn't even recognize him, and they rejected him. It's this powerful picture. He says that he's dwelling amongst us, and when he says us, he doesn't mean you and I, us, 2,000 years later. He means us, us, the disciples, the friends, the people who lived with Jesus, and he says we, and he's not talking about you and I, we, he's talking about his Friends, and Peter, and James, and Andrew, and Martha, and Mary, and, and all of these people, we have seen this. And I want to describe to you what I've seen, John is saying. He says, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, 
What we talked about two weeks ago was this reality that, that it wasn't just Jesus lowly in a manger, but he would say, listen, we saw him glorified. We saw him transfigured. We saw him walk on water. We saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. We saw him even be pierced in the side when his blood and water flowed out of him. And then ultimately he died in his own bodily fluid, suffocating to death. And then they put him in a hole in the ground and we thought he was as good as dead. We went to embalm him and we went to finalize it and then we saw that the hole was empty. And he walked amongst us and we touched his hands. And then, and then 45 days later, we're hanging out in the garden and he goes, peace out, yo. I got to go back to heaven. And he sends through the clouds. And we're just left watching this happen. This is not just the lowly Jesus in a manger. This is the glorified, the one and only son who came from the father. And then he gives us this tension about how Jesus lived amongst the fallen. He says he was full of grace and truth. He was full of grace. He was full of truth to the brim overflowing. Now, the thing is, we, we know what grace is. And we know what truth is, and there's this tension there, because truth says this. Truth says you're accountable, but then grace says, oh, you're forgiven. Grace says you're fine. Truth says, no, really, you're actually broken. Grace says you're going to be okay, and truth says, you know what, you're actually going to need to work on this. Grace says, I love you, and no matter what you do, I'm going to love you. And truth says, yeah, but you're accountable because your decisions hurt you and hurt other people. And this is the truth of the situation. And so there's this tension. And all of us, in our personalities, we lean in one direction or the other, don't we? Either a truth person or a grace person. Are you a truth person or are you a grace person? Because we, many of us grew up with parents and one of our parents was like grace. The other one was like ungrace, right? You knew who to go to. Your parents would argue behind closed doors about the best way to interact and best way to parent you. And which one did you like better? Grace, right? We all like the grace one, especially when we get in trouble, but if you grew up in a great home, you actually had a healthy dose of both, didn't you? Here's what John said. It's so remarkable. He says, I spent years watching Jesus and how he interacted with people and how he navigated these intricacies and really difficult circumstances. So as I begin my gospel, he says, I, I, I'm going to begin with a description of Jesus. And here's what I saw. I saw that he was full to the brim of both. John said, I watched him. He was full of grace and truth. He says this in verse 16. He says, out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. In other words, you've been, you've been given grace after grace after grace after grace after grace because the reality is, if I got what I deserved, I would be condemned already. If I got what I deserved, I would stand condemned already, not just because of what comes out of me, but because of what's inside of me. My goodness, if the world around me saw my thoughts and my feelings about other human beings made in the image of God, I would be embarrassed. 
And for every time I'm ticked off about someone else who's disrespected me or discounted me or, or has failed me, I'm triple and quadruple guilty of failing other people and disrespecting other people and not considering other people. And goodness, if January shows us anything is that I'm not good at even following my own laws and rules for myself. Because January's going to come and we're all going to make a decision to never do this or to start doing this. And it's going to be a matter of hours or days before we can't even keep the rules we have for ourselves. And Jesus gives us grace upon grace upon grace. In verse 17, he brings us to this point of clarification. He says, for the law. And we know what the law is. The law is the Ten Commandments. Not just the Ten Commandments, but 600 additional commandments on top of that. We find him in the Old Testament. For the law was given through Moses. This is like the movie. You know, he comes down from the mountain. He's got the Ten Commandments and all the rest of them. They were given through Moses. And the law is where God told us what he expects from us. This is what's required of you. All 600 of these things. All the thou shalt nots and thou shalt and you should do this. And if you don't do this, this is how you make it right and how you atone for your sin before God. He says the law was given to us through Moses. And then he makes this huge distinction. And it's almost as if John kind of pauses for a moment. He says, how do I describe this? He says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came came, and he doesn't use the word given, he uses a different term. And some of the, maybe some of your versions, it would say begotten. He was born. Grace and truth was born, showed up as a full package. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now listen, not the balance between, but the embodiment, the fullness, the full measure of, of both. And, and this is what makes this is what makes it messy. This is what makes it confusing. This is what makes us look at Jesus, and when we are pulled to one side or the other, we find it confusing. John says he was all of it, and he brought all of it to bear on every situation, on every challenging relationship that he came up against. And we wish that he would go one way or the other and tell him like it is or let him off the hook but Jesus brought all of it to bear because he was the fullness of grace and truth in a body. And listen, when you start to read the New Testament and the Gospels through those kinds of lenses, you start to see it emerge everywhere. If you've grown up going to Sunday school, you've probably heard the story of the woman at the well. Jesus shows up in Samaria at a well in the middle of the day, and there's a woman there with her, with him. And he starts talking to her. He's not supposed to do that. So this is the first, like, he's showing grace to her. And she's like, why are you talking with me? I'm a Samaritan. Because in that time, Samaritans were seen as, like, half-breeds. They're, like, muggle-born. They weren't allowed to interact with them. And Jesus starts talking with her. And so she's amazed by this. And she's like, what's up with that? And just as they start to build some rapport, he says to her, hey, I want you to go and bring your husband she goes, well, I have no husband. He goes, I know. And then he reaches into the most shameful and painful part of her life and her past. He says, I know, you've had five husbands. And the husband you have right now, the man you're with right now, you're not even married to him. 
And even the Samaritans know that's not how you're supposed to live. He's like, you've had five husbands and you've either divorced them or they've died. Like, you're really bad with men. You keep messing this up. And it's like, you read this and you're like, Jesus, hello. I mean, did you not even go to seminary? Like, don't you know you're not supposed to do that? You're not supposed to bring like the most painful parts of someone's past out into the open like that. This is supposed to be grace and truth. Jesus, where's the grace? And then all of a sudden, he reveals something to this woman that he doesn't reveal in all of the rest of the Gospels. And he looks at her in the eye, out all alone at the well in the middle of the day, because she was too ashamed to go in the cool of the morning when everyone else went. And he says, you're looking eye to eye with the Messiah. And I've not told anyone else that, but I'm telling you that. And listen, I can give you a water that won't just satisfy your thirst, but it'll satisfy your soul like no other man could. She goes and she shares with everyone in her community who probably gave her no credibility that she met the Messiah. And if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably knew that as Jesus was crucified, that there were two people next to him on the cross. So we think that they're thieves, but it's interesting. I read through the Gospels this week, and I say, you know, they're never called thieves. They're called rebels, and they're called robbers. In other words, thieves usually weren't crucified. Crucifixion was saved for the worst of the worst. These were people that would have led other groups of people in rebellion and in violence. They could not be trusted to serve on a galley ship or to be put in the mines as a slave. And so they had to be executed. And they're next to Jesus. And one of them says, hey, we're getting what we deserve. And you'd expect Jesus to say, no, 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 listen, you have a good heart. You're a good person. Don't be so hard on yourself. Jesus is like, hey, no argument for me. But when you breathe your last breath today, and I breathe my last breath today, we're going to be together in paradise. It's like, okay, hold on, Jesus, hold on. Because like just a few chapters ago, this rich young man comes to you and says, well, how do I get, the, how do I get eternal life? Do you remember what you told him, Jesus? You said that in order to get eternal life, you have to sell everything and follow me for the rest of your life. But this guy gets to come in with 20 minutes on the clock? That's unfair. That's confusing. And we have to give up everything to follow you, and he gets in at the last minute. And he can't rededicate his life. He can't serve the poor. He can't say, I'm going to resolve to really understand Yahweh God. He doesn't know any of that. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me, the best of the best, and the worst of the worst, together in paradise. See, there's this tension, and when you try to resolve it, you end up losing something. And then probably the most famous story in all of Scripture, in the Gospel of John, is about this woman who's caught in adultery, and the teachers of the law bring her before Jesus Somehow, had they catch her, probably, I don't know, one of them may have been the other offending party, but they bring her and they say, hey, according to the law of Moses, she should be put to death. She should be stoned. What Jesus could have said is this, well, according to the Roman law, 
You can't put her to death. Get out of here, you guys. Stop trying to trick me. But instead, he says, okay, let's play to the law of Moses. Stoner. And let's begin with the person of you that doesn't have any sin. The one of you that's never looked at another person lustfully, you start. Those of you that haven't committed adultery in your own heart, you start. The person that thinks, you know, I would never do that, you be the person that starts. And then all of a sudden, the law of Moses, the law of retribution begins to break down, and they leave one by one. And so Jesus, Jesus just makes everybody uncomfortable And then he looks at this woman and he says, I don't condemn you. That's grace. That's grace upon grace. And then he says, no, go leave your life of sin. That's truth. The truth is you're an adulterer. The truth is there are consequences to your choices. I don't condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. Okay, hold on. Jesus, wait, wait. Which one of it? Is that, is it you're a sinner or I don't condemn you? Yes. Yes. I don't condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. Now, Jesus, why did you have to bring up the sin part after all? And how can you say that she's not condemned? Jesus would say, because this is how I love. I'm the embodiment of both grace and truth. Now, if we're going to be the hands and feet of Christ, if, if we're called the body of Christ, then we actually have to bring this into how we treat one another and how we interact with the brother-in-law at the t- dinner table at Christmas time. We actually have to bring this into community, and we're going to try to get this right, and we're not always going to get it right. Because we're going to find ourselves in difficult situations, and, 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 and we're, we're just going to say, listen, we're not just going to be that truth, truth church. Like, I've grown up, that, that was me. I've served at the churches that says we're hard on sin. That would be easy to do. It's not hard to be the angry preacher pounding the pulpit from the Old Testament saying, this is sin, and this is sin, and this is sin, and this is sin, and you're condemned. Why is it then when I'm caught in my sin, when I've screwed up and I need forgiveness, I want the grace part for me. So we're conflicted and it's messy. But listen, if you want to know what Jesus meant by what he said, you look at how Jesus lived and what he did. And if you want to know what Jesus meant when he said love one another, look at how he actually loved. You want to know how he loved? He called sin, sin, and then he paid for it. And having paid for it, he declared, I don't condemn you. And he would look at all of us and he would say, now I'm calling it sin, I'm paying for it, and I'm saying I don't condemn you, now go leave your life of sin and walk in the fullness of relationship of being a child of God that I want to bestow upon you. And if you don't, I love you. And if you can't, I love you. And if the woundedness and the shrapnel of your own sin has left you in the place where you're not even sure that you'll be able to walk away from the complexity of your sin, I love you. 
And if you've been sinned against and that sent you into a spiral of self-destructive behavior and you're not sure if you'll ever be able to recover from that, I love you. And the truth is, you're a sinner. You're the worst sinner that you ever know, that you will ever know. But the grace is, listen, I don't condemn you and I could not love you more than I already do. But there's a tension there, isn't there? There's a tension that if we try to resolve that, we give up something important. Because the world would say this. The world would say, why does the truth even matter at all? As long as I'm not hurting anyone else, we should just give grace to each and every decision. There is no objective morality. But you know why we can't let go of truth? Because sin has a, has a gotcha. And God would say, I love you, and I don't want sin to get you. And because I love you, because you're made in my image, I don't want you to wrong yourself. I don't want you to wrong other people. And so God constantly says, here's what's true. Here's what's true. And, you, and this is how you need to live your life. And you have to treat people differently. And you need to have morality and ethics. You need to be honest and not cheat and not steal. And you need to confess and you need to be held accountable because I love you. And sin hasn't got you and I don't want it to get you. And the reason, listen, we can't let go of grace is because to some extent, sin has gotten a hold of all of us. And the only way back to the, our heavenly Father that loves us is through his grace. In fact, Jesus would say it this way. It's not just a way, it's a person. He would say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. We need massive levels of truth and we need massive levels of grace. And if we're the embodiment of that, if we're supposed to be his hands and feet, as difficult as it is, we dare not let go of either of those things because we are the only Jesus that some people are ever going to know. And so we have to choose to embrace both of those things, even when it's difficult and even when it's messy. Even when we say, I don't know, but I'm going to walk in the truth and I'm going to walk in grace. Listen, I, I believe that the church is at its best when we choose to embrace both of those things when we dare not let go of either. And there's going to be times when we feel like landing in one camp or when we feel like landing in the other as we engage in relationships, but we dare not let go of either because we're going to have times where we each individually are going to need massive levels of truth. And we're going to need massive levels of grace. So let's be the dispenser of both as a church. Let's pray that God will allow us to, to manage that tension as we're in life group with people that are going to hurt us. And we're going to deal with the fallout of someone else's sin, and we're going to have to choose to say, I choose today to forgive you again. And when there's going to be someone in our lives, and, and they're going to be stepping off the rails and heading towards the cliff, and you're going to have to say, hey, listen, I love you too much to not speak truth to you. Let's be the dispenser of both of those things. Let me pray for you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Uh, man, this, this is easy to talk about. But even in this moment, I think we can each think of a, a family member, someone we work with, someone in our neighborhood 
one of our kids' friends, and we're just like, God, how, how can we be both? And we think about our spouses who are not always easy to love. God, how can we embody both grace and truth the way that Jesus did? Give us that wisdom. Give us that courage to hang on to both, even when, even when, Lord, that means difficult conversations. I pray that's just be true for me. It's just a part of this body. I want that to be true for me. And Lord, help us to extend the forgiveness that you've extended to us so that we're not all truth and that we're not all just grace, but we live in the tension of that. Open our eyes, God, to know what that looks like in our homes, in our school places, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. God, help us to being good stewards of the grace and the truth that you've extended to us and help us to extend that to the world around us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.